0: If you'd like to listen to the entire interview, the place to go is our website, reorientpodcast.com. Sign up for membership, get access to our full library of content and exclusive events, all at reorientpodcast.com. For a limited time only, use the code REORIENT to get 30% off any membership tier. You'll also be supporting our work. That's reorientpodcast.com, promo code REORIENT. Thanks. You know, the example of Hugo Stinez. He was a German industrialist during the Weimar hyperinflation. He saw it coming. He went out and borrowed an enormous amount in Reichsmarks. And he took the money and he invested in hard assets. He bought coal, steel, shipping transportation, railroads, etc. Then hyperinflation came and went. He paid back all the money. He was a good borrower. I would say pennies on the dollar, but it was millions of a penny on the dollar. They were sweeping it down the sewers. But he went through the exercise of paying off the debt and worthless rice marks and kept the assets and became the richest man in Germany. Hello,
1: and welcome to The Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. And I'm Madhavi Peters, also known as The Tropicalist. Jim Rickards, welcome to The Reorient Podcast.
0: Thank you, Jesse. Great to be with you.
1: It's great to be with you too, and I really appreciate you making the time to uh, chat with me. You've been a great friend. I'm I'm a huge admirer of your work, which includes many books that you publish, and I won't go through your entire biography, which we actually will have on the, in our website, but I think you're one of the sharpest, um, not only a sharp mind, but you're able to integrate so many different disciplines and that are often uh, sealed off and integrate them in a way that makes a compelling narrative to explain what has and what's going on in the world.
0: Well, thank you. It's very kind. Uh, I But you, you touched on something that I think is important for Every analyst in every discipline, which is is really an interdisciplinary approach. It, it, it specialization is great. That's how the civilization got where it is today. And you know, Adam Smith favored it. And there's a lot of value in it. But there comes a time when we're broken into so many specialties and we're so specialized that we lose sight of you know. I hate to use cliches, but I'll say a, a, a bigger picture, maybe more of the point. If you can combine physics and economics, if you can combine In the case of the pandemic, you pretty much have to be a bit of uh, an epidemiologist, even if that's not your background, to go along with your economic forecasts uh, and also behavioral psychology. So I think anyone, not just me, but anyone who can integrate two or three different disciplines is going to have a big advantage when it comes to analysis. Completely agreed. And, and so
1: before we sort of get into your latest book, because you're obviously famous for Currency Wars, on the particular topic we just broached, can you walk us sort of quickly to how you, uh, because you've had a career that actually has spanned across a number of different disciplines and professions. So can you just give us maybe a brief sense of your life story career wise and how you got to um, have the certain scope of interest that, that you do?
0: Yeah, um, I'm sort of a, a lawyer by training, and that was the lion's share of my career, but uh, I always worked in-house. I'm, I'm happy to say I never spent a day in a law firm, even though I was a lawyer for 45 years. I always worked in-house as a counsel or general counsel at a number of institutions. But before I went to law school, I got a graduate degree in international economics from the School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, which has held me in very good stead. Uh it, and I've always brought that international training with me. So even throughout my legal career, that was always a big part of, uh, of of the background of what I brought to the table. But I started my career for for 10 years. I was international tax counsel to City. Uh, like I like to say that was back in the day when City was a bank and not a hedge fund. Then I uh, shifted gears and uh, became general counsel of a major investment bank. But in particular, it was a bank that Was one of the largest uh, market makers in US government securities. That was our specialty. We did mortgage backs and other things, some investment banking, but we were one of the so called primary dealers in uh, US Treasury securities. Being a primary dealer puts you on a short list of people who are able to deal directly with the Fed. So the open market desk at the Federal Reserve was one of our counterparties. And that was always attracted to our other customers because they saw how you guys are talking to the Fed, which we were. Um, Did that for about 10 years. And then I, went to the dark side and joined the hedge fund world and I was general counsel of long-term capital management from start to finish. Uh, we uh, made a few headlines in 1998 and uh, I always uh, remind people I was not the head of the risk committee but I was the general counsel so it fell to me to negotiate that rescue that was uh, put together by the Fed and the, the 14 families, the 14 biggest banks. So we uh, despite the uh, catastrophic potential. We were able to bring that in for a soft landing in late 98. Um, then I ran a stock exchange for a while. Uh, then after 9-11, I was tapped by the uh, CIA to help out with, with financial counterterrorism, so basically financial warfare in, as part of the global war on terror. But we pretty quickly branched out into a broader set of activities, and, and we created a new branch of intelligence, which we call Markent. Uh For Market Intelligence, you may know that INT is intelligence. So you have human, which is human intelligence, uh, SIGINT, which is signals intelligence and other. And so we, we with a couple of collaborators, we created MARKINT, uh, Markint which is uh, market intelligence, um, built a working prototype of a system that could look at open, open source information, basically market prices. And using uh, Bayesian mathematics, complexity theory, and other branches of science, we were able to actually infer and detect... What actors were doing based on their financial footprint i the way I described it to people, if you had an invisible fish in a pond, you could still identify the fish by the ripples uh because he, but you, so if you could turn the ripples into an image of a fish, we turn market activity into uh uh intentions of uh, potentially hostile actors. did that for about ten years uh along the way took a lead in the siphious process uh when you say CFIUS, people say, does it itch or scratch? Uh, but it's a uh, it's an acronym, a Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. So we were, it's run out of the Treasury. We were the gatekeepers on foreign investment in U.S. companies, from uh, not from an antitrust or, or securities law point of view, but from a national security point of view. And then did some interviews and got a cold call one day from a, a literary agent. She said, I, I heard you on Planet Money, popular NPR uh, business show. And she said, would you like to write a book? And literally put it that way. And I said, well, I never thought about it, but let's meet. And we met and hit it off. And next thing you know, we had an outline. And that led to Currency Wars, uh, which was my first book. It was a national bestseller. Uh, And then I've written six or seven books since then, including my most recent. So I don't know whether you call that an eclectic background or I just didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. But I've done a few different things. Yeah,
1: absolutely, and it's a great segue. So you've written, um, I think, six books, and uh, the most recent is called "The New Great Depression: Winners and Losers in a Post-Pandemic World." Right. Um, most of your books do seem to touch on this idea of potential or impending crisis of a lot of of vulnerabilities and fra- fragility within the global monetary system, and how that can. Play out in ripples and either in tidal waves uh, in terms of movements and values of currencies and and, and assets etc so would you say the sort of the title um, i mean and you make the case in the book that we are already in a depression and not right. only a depression but a pretty uh, massive and severe one uh, that was gener- you know has a, a lot of causes but was probably accelerated by the response to the pandemic starting last year. So maybe explain to our audience what exactly a depression is by definition and how big of a depression you see that we are and how you will see that unfolding over the next uh, 12 to 24 months.
0: Sure. That's an important question, uh, Justin. You put your finger on uh, the difference between a depression, which is what I read about in my book, and a recession, which is what economists talk about and so just to do the easy one first a recession is defined as two or more consecutive quarters of declining GDP and a couple other bells and whistles maybe rising unemployment there's a group a private group uh, in Cambridge called uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research and they are the they're the umpires they call balls and strikes they decide when a recession began and when it's over uh, they often don't make that decision until months or sometimes a year or more after, it's over, but you know they they want to see all the data, and they they've already said though that a recession started in February 2020, and I agree with that. I think that's ex- exactly when it started, and uh, they haven't said it's over, but it very likely is over because we had going back to 2020 first quarter down about five percent annualized, second quarter down about 31 percent annualized. So there are your two consecutive quarters of declining growth, but third quarter grew at an annualized rate of about 33 percent and then we also had growth in the fourth quarter uh about uh four percent so if you if you do the two or more quarters metric uh which is the right one you'd say the recession was over by july we're growing again what's the big deal so then flip over to depression the d word economists have pretty much uh, banished the d word uh, you're not allowed to say it um and uh but there are reasons for that. One is the recession is quantitative, so you can you can measure it and stick it in a closed form equation. Uh depression is much more subjective, much more uh um you know it doesn't lend itself to quantification. And people make that's where people make the mistake, because they say, in effect, well, if a recession is two quarters of declining GDP, two or more, and a depression is worse than a recession. Then a depression must be, you know, 10 quarters of declining GDP. And that's not true. The, uh, you can have growth in a depression. And indeed, we did in, in the Great Depression. It's conventionally dated from 1929 to 1940. There was a severe recession from 1929 to 1933 and another severe recession from 1937 to 1938. But the period from 1933 to 1936 was a period of growth. In fact, 1933 was one of the best years for the stock market in history. So you did have growth in the middle of the depression, uh, even though it wasn't a technical recession. But the reason the whole period is called a depression is because the growth was never enough to dig you out of the hole. In other words, if unemployment dropped from 25% to 14%, which it did between 1933 and 1936, It was still 14%. It was still a sky-high level. There were still bankruptcies. There was still deflation, which is one of the problems uh, President Roosevelt wrestled with. So depressions are uh, subjective. They're long-lasting. They're behavioral. They're psychological. You can have growth in a depression, but it's... If I could interrupt for a second. In
1: terms of the utility of the term, I think making that psychological and behavioral, whereas recession, you could say it's a clear quantitative, but depression linking to the psychological idea of depression makes sense if we're going to describe it on a macro scale, maybe perhaps, and and this is, uh, I can ask you, but sort of lower, reduced expectations, um, very little confidence in the future, a change in behavior that stakes in when you lose your optimism and, and what that does on a greater scale and so that's maybe what we're describing about when we talk about a depression economic depression is that does that, sound that right? that's
0: exactly right and i use john Maynard yeah. kane's definition um because what what kane said his definition of a depression was a sustained period of below trend growth with no tendency either to complete collapse or a return to trend in other words you can have growth in a depression, but it's below trend, it's below potential. So if your potential in, say, mature advanced economies such as the United States is three, three and a half percent, and you're growing at two percent, that's depressed growth. And that's what a depression is with a few technical recessions along the way. So I would make the case that Japan, for example, has been in a depression since 1990. They've had a number of technical recessions on the way, but the whole 30 years is one long depression. And for that matter, the United States is probably entering its second lost decade. If we date from two thousand
1: nine, so is the idea that the depression, because there's this change in mindset behavior, it becomes self reinforcing, and so there's a uh, what you call it, not a virtuous cycle, but a um, vicious circle versus cycle, so that the the depression changes people's behavior in a way that will further continue or even worsen the, the depression going forward. And maybe that's what you'd say you've had in Japan over these lost
0: decades. Well, that's right. Let me give some concrete examples of that because I think this is where – well, a couple of things. There, first of all, one of the very powerful pieces of research that I cite in my book, The New Great Depression – by the way, I hope everyone buys it and reads it, but I tell people it's, it's worth it. great a, read. It's worth the uh, the sticker price just for the end notes because uh, there's a ton of primary research and all those papers and so forth are in there, uh, very extensively annotated. So um, you don't have to read them, but they're there. But there's one piece of research. It was done, it was a collaboration by an economist from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and two academic colleagues, I believe, from the University of California. Again, it's in, it's in the notes of the book. It's easy to find. But what they did is they looked at every pandemic for the last 650 years in which there were 200,000 or more fatalities. Um, and that, so 650 years, uh, that, that's, by the way, that's my uh, my idea of a good time series. I criticize economists all the time because they'll say, well, I've got this correlation is, uh, you know, R squared is you know, 0.9. Look at this correlation. I go, how long is your time series? I go, oh, we took it back two years. Like that's, that's nonsense. Talk to me about 20 years or maybe 200 years and I might listen to you. But six hundred and fifty years is is a good good enough time series. But they went back to the Black Death, uh the thirteen fifties, and they identified fifteen pandemics since thirteen fifty that had two hundred thousand or more deaths. By the way, uh COVID is going to be is already is third on that list. Number one was the um Spanish flu, which uh nineteen eighteen, which killed about a hundred million people. The Black Death of of 1350s 1350s killed 75 million people, but number three on the list uh, was the Asian flu of 1958 that killed 2 million people, and there was a Russian epidemic in the 1890s that also killed 2 million people. COVID-19 has killed about 2.5 million people, so it's going to be third on this list of, of 15 that I mentioned, but getting back to the list so but they're uh they're economists not epidemiologists but they got the data but then they asked the question okay given this list of 15 of 15 serious pandemics with high fatalities how long did it take for economies to normalize and i'll put the word normalize in quotes because you never really get back to normal these are phase transitions these are these are critical changes that have long long repercussions but if you mean, you know, employment, wage growth, uh, inflation, other metrics like that, the answer is, uh, it takes 30 years, not 30 days, not 30 months, but 30 years. So that's intergenerational. And that's what we're looking at. And just to bring it a little closer to home, and this was not a pandemic, but looking at the Great Depression. So that was in the 1930s. So I grew up in the 50s and early 60s. I did not live through the Great Depression, but my parents did and my grandparents did. And we were raised with a depression mentality, even though the 50s and 60s were a fairly prosperous time in the US economy. And we would go out in the morning, get the newspaper, and you take the rubber band off the newspaper from the paperboy, and you put the rubber band in a jar, because why would you throw away a rubber band? And we would go out in our red you know, American flyer wagons and go door to door and collect newspapers and tin cans we weren't doing it for environmental reasons maybe it was good for the environment but we were doing it for recycling because you could take those tin cans melt them down and build jet planes yes this was during the cold war and so we had that kind of depression mentality where you were frugal and you saved that didn't change until the late 1960s when the baby boom came of age and then it was you know credit cards and mortgages and home equity loans and party uh uh you know till you drop so it did change but the point is it took 30 years from so the 1930s to the 1960s that's anecdotal but it's completely consistent with the research i just described from these economists and so i see no reason not to expect the same given the magnitude of this covid19 pandemic that um we're you know jay powell comes out and says well we're going to hold interest rates at zero until 2023 and my answer is jay why don't we try 2040 thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast To access the entire podcast and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please
1: visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.